Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Basically, the plan was I have six months to live on, and it was the first time I was willing to spend it down to zero. So I had saved enough of six months living expenses. It's not like I said to myself, I am going to crush it. I'm going to leave and I know what I'm doing and I have a business plan and I'm already earning what I need to survive. And I've got this. Not at all. I just reached a point. I was 27. I, I was in meetings and on email a lot as much as I had this great job on paper. I remember feeling like I think I will forever regret if I don't at least try to do my own thing. And that's when my first book was coming out. That's around the time you and I met. So that was it. It was six months. What I didn't anticipate. So I did not think I was this brilliant entrepreneurial person. And if anyone could be successful, it was me. I actually thought the opposite. However, what I didn't account for was that when I left, my whole mind cleared up. It took, it took about a month to unwind from the pace and the kind of burnout and just fatigue. But after that, it's like I had my entire creative mind available to say, how am I going to pay the rent this month? That's it. Like I had, to, I had all day, every day for 30 whole days to myself, having done things only as a side hustle to literally just figure out what can I offer? How many clients do I need? And how do I create some systems and, and predictability around my cash flow? And that's it. So although I wasn't super confident, I didn't, I didn't account for how that free mental space was going to be such an asset. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Jenny, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me, Shani. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, you are in sort of rare company of guests who have been here uh, three times. And wow, yeah. I feel very lucky. <laughs> and we were just saying like the last time you and I talked was 11 years ago. You have a new book out called Free Time, Lose the Busy Work, Love Your Business, all of which we will get into. But having been on the show before, you know, that's not where we're going to start. Uh, one of the things that I have noticed, and even thinking back to some of our earlier conversations, is that you reference your dad a lot in your work. And I wanted to start by asking you, what is one of the most important lessons that he or your mother have taught you that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've done with your life? Mm. 
What a great zinger to start us off. My dad is a consummate creative. He's always reading, thinking, painting, songwriting. So, so from him, I learned just the creative entrepreneurial spirit. And he's also very rigorous. So I, the reason I mention him so much in my books is because he does very intense, close reads of every single one and edits them. And he'll ask me before he dives in, do you want gloves off? My answer is always yes. And that means he's going to be ruthless <laughs> with his feedback and his comments. And he will pull no punches. There will be red ink, proverbial and literal, all over the page. And I just so believe that that kind of feedback makes everything better. Some people get offended. You know, he's he's edited other people's work and they get offended by that and get their feelings hurt. And I took from one of my very earliest mentors, Michael Larson. He said, don't spare me, spare the reader. I feel the same way. So that's a lesson I learned from my dad and from Michael is just get the tough feedback. It will make everything better. And it's better to get the feedback and then accept what resonates and reject what doesn't than to be afraid to ask at all. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, he's been a big part of every book. And then uh, my mom as well, just in a very different way. She's more, um, she's worked at Stanford for over 20 years and she has vision. They're both architects, but her vision is very kind of like big, systematic, structural, putting in the work over time, which is really cool to see. Mm. So that uh, very like, you know, ruthless feedback, was that something that was just incorporated early on from when you were a kid or is that start like when you started writing books? It was more working on the books. My dad is the kind, if I told my dad I wanted to run for president, he would genuinely believe that I could become the president. <laughs> like, so he has always said, yeah, go for it. Do whatever you want. Like reach for the stars. He has no in his mind and, and how he was always encouraging to my brother and I, there was just no limit. He would not shoot down any ideas. And I'm very grateful for that, that level of encouragement, because I don't, I, I, I've never been somebody that for some reason, even with that coming from my dad and my mom's always encouraging too, but I'm not very confident. I'm always kind of doubting myself. And, and now as I'm, gosh, late, late thirties, <laughs> it's different than when I was in my twenties, but. It takes me a long time to kind of muster up the courage or think that I know enough or I'm equipped enough even to write this new book, know enough about business. I'm always the one kind of hesitating a little bit. And I know how much I don't know, partly because I read so many other books. And um, so he was never critical in that sense on a big picture. But when it comes to writing and clarity of thought, that's where that's where the gloves come off. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because, I mean, you and I were talking about this whole idea of context and prescriptive advice. And I almost think that you're actually self-aware enough to know that, OK, maybe I shouldn't be confident about something that I know nothing about. And I think that that whole idea of, oh, you can do whatever you want, you can do be anything like it's this difference. And it's funny because we're talking about harsh and critical feedback from your dad. And to me, I feel like often there are people who will tell you what you want to hear. And then there are people who will tell you what you need to hear and what you need to hear sucks, but it's actually more useful and better in the long run. Right. And then what's interesting about feedback is it's it's not about me personally. I'm not a bad person. It's yeah. like, let's get this text to be as crisp, as clear. You know, my dad has an abbreviation, W-K-I-Y-B. That stands for we know it's your book. As in anytime <laughs> I would write, I think, I believe, in my opinion, 
he would cross it off and put that abbreviation. We know it's your book. And somebody might read that as snarky or something, but I think it's quite funny. It's like, oh, he's making the point that um, my name's on the cover. I don't need to say I think over and over or kind of soften the language. And I, you're right. Like, so I think it's also recognizing when feedback is for the person. And even with my team, I'm, I'm always saying, it's it's usually never the person who's bad or doing something wrong. It's the process is broken. Stress is a systems problem. Let's look at the system. Let's look, why did this fall through the cracks? It's not because you're inept. It's because our system is not tight enough. And so just like the metaphor of spinach in your teeth, and Kim Scott talked about this in her book, Radical Candor, you want someone to tell you. If there is spinach in your teeth, you want someone to tell you. Yeah. Yeah, I... It's funny because I think creatives in particular are so sensitive about learning how to take feedback. Like they can't separate feedback on them from feedback on the work. Because I learned this when I worked with uh, my my writing coach Robin, who you know all of you will hear an interview with soon. And she was kind of like your dad, and I, that was actually the reason I chose her because she told me she's like, I am going to be tough on you, and. I don't think I the closest thing I got to a compliment in the entire manuscript in two books or for in both books was good, but pretty much like the comment. And, and not only that, the comments were things like lazy. Try again. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And she had edited books for Seth Godin. So I was like, all right, well, you've edited books for Seth Godin. So you know what the hell you're doing. I should listen to you. But it took me a month before I stopped taking her feedback personally. Yes. And it's so vulnerable. I mean, any creative work, I remember thinking when I turned the first draft of free time into the developmental editor, Herb, I genuinely in my heart of hearts did not know if he was going to write back and say, you should burn this whole thing. You should scrap this entire book. Do not pass go. Don't write this book. It's a disaster. Like, and I, I, I genuinely thought that was a likely outcome of him reading the first draft. That's how unsure and insecure I was about what was there because I was so close to the material. Thankfully, he wrote back. He said, this is amazing. I've worked in the industry 30 years. I love it. There's something unique here. And just his positive feedback really put wind in my sails and gave me wings and the project wings. And so it's amazing. It's so interesting. I find when you're in that very vulnerable state, it's incredible how the right constructive feedback is so propelling and and so helpful. And just a little encouragement can kind of keep the lights on of a process that's very easy to get discouraged by. Yeah. Well, I mean, this podcast exists because Sid Savara, my first co-founder, was like, yeah, he's like, your writing is average. He's like, your interviews are fantastic. So do that instead. Yeah. And then as the saying goes, it's hard to read the label from inside the jar. Sometimes it's when other people say, like he said to you, your interview skills are fantastic. I don't know. I, that's why going back to this idea of confidence, I, I'm not always, I'm not the most confident person because I just feel like, I don't know. It's my, you know, I have a podcast too. I'm like, it's my voice. It's my ideas. I'm sick of hearing myself. But if other people kind of reflect what they're hearing or what they think is unique, it, it confirms things that I don't think I could always tell just on my own. What did your parents teach you about making your way in the world? I mean, obviously, you ended up following a relatively conventional path to a certain point. I mean, I know if I remember correctly, you went to UCLA and then Google after that. Yeah, I did. UCLA startup for two years and then Google for five and a half. I was the latchkey kid. So my parents were both working full time. I lived in San Francisco. I would be taking the bus by myself through the city, figuring out how to entertain myself after school. Because I saw them working full time, I had jobs and little side hustles since I was 10 years old. And I was always 
earning money. (laughs) So that's kind of like a strange thing. But from a very young age, I would do things like started a family newspaper and charge for subscribers. Started Wait, a you charge your own business. family for the newsletter? Yeah, I had 50 <laughs> subscribers. I, I started, That's amazing. I had to pay for postage. I had to pay for printing and postage. And I started when I was 11 and I kept going at the monthly dig up every month all the way through high school. That's like it turned hilarious. quarterly at one point. Yeah. yeah. And I, I created a neighborhood carnival. So I, I was, I guess money was always on my mind. And... <laughs> You might hate astrology, but for any astrology nerds, uh, I have my son, Pluto, and Saturn are in my second house, which has to do with money and sort of material security. So it's always on my mind. Doesn't mean I always have a lot of money, but it's always something that I'm strategizing. And I do think about the money game that like part of when we're here on this earth in earth school, the money game is like, how do we, how do, because I used to have a lot of fear and scarcity around money and just being worried not to have a roof over my head or not to be earning enough or to be able to provide myself or have independence. And so I think part of the money game is the energy of it, the flow of it, how to accept when the tides roll out, how to accept when the tides roll in and things are really flesh and abundant. Um, so yeah, I guess that's also something that has just been with me since I was a kid. So what did you learn from your parents about money growing up and how did that narrative change? Because I mean, I've, I've talked to Ramith about this and he's like, yeah, yeah, we all have these sort of money stories. And uh, I think I feel some of the same things that you mentioned now. And I feel like it just ebbs and flows. There are times when it's like feast and famine. Uh, but I'm wondering, like one, you know, what did you learn growing up about money? And then what was the poorest you've ever felt and what was the most abundant you've ever felt and mm-hmm. why? One big lesson my mom said to me, you should always know how to support yourself. She told me that when I was young and I never forgot it, that I never, and I have a very fierce independent streak, never wanted to rely on a person or a job for financial security. And, you know, of course I did have some full-time jobs, like you said, the startup and Google, but I always had stuff going on the side. That's when you and I met was when I was blogging on the side. I was doing HTML and CSS tutoring on the side. I always had a portfolio. I never wanted to be reliant on a person or a job where I had to stay in a situation that wasn't good for me just because of the money. And that is something that I feel to this day very passionately about. And I think some of the money stories that I needed to shed or work on is just these associations, not not just from my own family, but society at large, even American culture, It's just like work is hard. Work is a grind. Work isn't supposed to be fun. You know, work is work. And just this idea of like, it's it's hard and scarce. And I just realized those thoughts. I mean, there's so many examples where we could show that that's true. But I also wanted to hold space that what if it wasn't? You know, what if what if it's easy? Like who said there's just no... I think we assume that something is true. Like, um, yeah, even this notion of you have to work really hard or you have to hustle, you have to grind. And now it's off. Now we have so many conversations about shifting the culture less away from this hustle and grind, sleep when I'm dead mentality. But when I was in my early twenties, starting out my career, that, that wasn't the case. And I just kept burning out and getting sick, like physically, physical um, thyroid issues and acne and asthma and all these ailments that were with me for so long that I only realized later on that part of the way that I was working was making me sick. And so 
do I have to buy into the idea that work has to be a horrible, miserable grind in order to earn just enough money? What if I held the belief that it could be easy, it could be fun, it could be joyful, it could be serving a higher good? And just what if I tried those on at the same time and then saw what the results were? And I always feel better when I lean into that second category of surrender and serendipity, even around money, even when it gets uncertain, even when it gets stressful. Yeah. Well, so this actually raises um, a question about uh, you know something that I've been thinking a lot about is the role that privilege plays in being able to think this way. Because I mean, let's face it, you and I come from fairly privileged backgrounds. I mean, my dad's a college professor. I mean, your mom worked at Stanford. It's not like we grew up dirt poor and had parents who had to you know work three jobs. And I always feel like a lot of the conversations we have, like the one you and I have, are having, are really kind of basically tailored to people who come from privileged backgrounds like this. And we don't really take time to acknowledge that. I'm just curious, like what your view is on that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal. 
growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Oh yeah, 100%. I mean, what I came to realize as well around this conversation of privilege is the relationship to risk changes. That I could take certain risks like leaving school to work at a startup, leaving Google to go out on my own because I knew that if worse came to worse, I could move back home. You know, I could move in with my mom or my mom could loan me money, you know, or something like that. And so I think that really changes somebody's risk profile, knowing are you going to be out on the street or do you have a safety net, even if it's living in mom's basement, the proverbial basement that we always talk about. So absolutely, that has been, that is a privilege. And I, I also feel um, something that, you know, we don't talk as much about in terms of privilege, but just education. And um, my my parents were both highly educated. So the level of vocabulary, the I they never said no to a book or to travel or anything. Um, and my parents got divorced when I was young, when I was five years old. So it's not like they were, they weren't necessarily together driving these messages home, but just each of them individually held these values. And so that also changes, you know, my love of reading, my love, my vocabulary, my ability to think up, you know, and, and of course, somebody who doesn't have a tr- traditional education can be so intelligent as well. And, um, that doesn't take away anything away, but it's a real boost to have had just a certain level of like vocabulary growing up. It just gives a head start that some people don't get or they have to work so much harder to get. And so I'm always very mindful. I, I would say the, the one thing is I, for some reason, my personality, I never want to ask other people for money. I always want to tr- to do it on my own and kind of do it the hard way and be independent. Um And so it was always very important to me that everything I do be responsible and be able to sustain myself. And so, you know, that's just, that's always been a strong value of mine. I never really wanted to lean on too much on other people. I just felt that wouldn't be responsible. Um, but yeah, I, I don't say things, you know, like, oh, I bootstrap my business. And I say in free time, well, what brand of boots were you born in? It just depends what brand of boots, what we, this whole thing of starting on third base. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, well, and recognizing the advantages of that. Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump basically started on third base. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Parents getting divorced when you're young, what impact did that end up having on your relationships in your adult life? Well, there's part of me that was really glad that that happened because they were fighting a lot. And I remember thinking, Hallelujah. Like, you know, these two people are not not meant to be together. Good. This is great. There will be more more peace, hopefully, for all involved. Probably the biggest impact that it had was I I started to notice in seventh grade, I was so afraid of a breakup that I never wanted to get into relationships in the first place. And I always felt like I was somehow at a kindergarten level or elementary school level of understanding about relationships. And I don't, I can't say it's because of the divorce or not, but just even my personality while everyone else seemed to know what they were doing. And I like, I was single most of my twenties. I would date emotionally unavailable men or I would get in these, I got catfished before that was a term and a TV show. I would like get into these really weird situations where I was 
overgiving or not seeing red flags early enough. And so again, I don't know why I can't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say, Oh, that's just because my parents got divorced. Cause I, again, at the time I was very thankful that that happened, but I definitely by nature and by nurture did not have a friggin' clue about intimate relationships until now I am married. I got married in 2018 but that was after all my friends were already married and had kids. And I just had reached a point in my life where I'm like, I don't think I'm ever getting married. I just don't think I'm the marrying type. And uh, it's <laughs> kind of strange to, yeah, it's strange to be married now because I never saw this for myself. I didn't expect it. I didn't see it coming and I didn't pine for it. I never fantasized about my wedding. I, I got married at City Hall. I didn't wear a dress. I wore a white uh, like pants, uh, not a pantsuit, jumpsuit, <laughs> like a white jumpsuit. I, I just never, ever, ever had dreams along these lines. And probably there was a piece of me that had the kind of realism, I guess, about marriage, not necessarily just being this fairy tale. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that that's the the sort of fatal flaw of a lot of sort of self-help literature and prescriptive advice is that we kind of tell these fairy tale stories and we leave out all the really hard parts in between. It's like, ah, here's my low point. Here's what I learned from it. And, you know, go be inspired. And, and you're like, wait a minute, that's that's not the entire story. And it also bothers me that society seems to place such a value. I mean, Gosh, even after I got married, I remember so many people accept it. It's like, oh, now they can exhale around you because you fit their idea of the box. And <laughs> you're talking to an Indian person who's single at 44. <laughs> so. Right. Right. And it's like, why are people so uncomfortable? And, and we assume, oh, you're not married by XYZ age. Oh, there must be something wrong with you. And that stigma really irks me. And there's a book called Singled Out that I think she it's so good. I think she more it's technically aimed more toward women and the stigma of women not being married, but she just talks about so much stigma around singles and singlehood and I think that that is really unnecessary. It's all all of it has pros and cons. The grass is always greener somewhere, you know. And it, I just don't accept that we all need to follow the same picket fence path. Mm. Well, speaking of, of picket fence paths, I mean, you left Google, which I think, I mean, we talked briefly about that uh, when I, I think I first talked to you. And I think by a lot of people's standards, that probably sounds insane. It's like, wait a minute, like this is like, you know, the kind of job that most people would kill for. Um, I'm not interested in why you left as much as how you created a plan that would make leaving possible. I basically the plan was I have six months to live on. And it was the first time I was willing to spend it down to zero. So I had saved enough of six months living expenses. At that time, I was not confident to go back to our the starting theme. It's not like I said to myself, I am going to crush it. I'm going to leave and I know what I'm doing and I have a business plan and I'm already earning what I need to survive and I've got this. Not at all. I just reached a point. I was 27. I I was in meetings and on email a lot. As much as I had this great job on paper, I remember feeling like I think I will forever regret if I don't at least try to do my own thing. And that's when my first book was coming out. That's around the time you and I met. So that was it. It was six months. What I didn't anticipate. So I did not think I was this brilliant entrepreneurial person. And if anyone could be successful, it was me. I actually thought the opposite. However, what I didn't account for was that when I left, my whole 
mind cleared up. It took, it took about a month to unwind from the pace and the kind of burnout and just fatigue. But after that, it's like I had my entire creative mind available to say, how am I going to pay the rent this month? That's it. Like I had, to, I had all day, every day for 30 whole days to myself, having done things only as a side hustle to literally just figure out what can I offer? How many clients do I need? And how do I create some systems and, and predictability around my cash flow? And that's it. So although I wasn't super confident, I didn't, I didn't account for how that free mental space was going to be such an asset. And then if, lo and behold, the six months came and went, I was earning money every month. And it wasn't until a few years after that, that I hit another low moment that sparked me working on pivot of where I realized, oh, shoot, <laughs> you know, now when I'm wondering what's next, and I need a creative pause and I want to take a sabbatical. There's no money coming in. All my income grinds to a halt. And that was incredibly stressful. So it's always those crisis moments that get me to then think my way into the next set of strategies to create more just calm and ease so I don't freak out. (laughs) And now we're here 11 years later. Well, you know, the thing that I hear over and over and over, and I think it's kind of fitting that all the topics we could be talking about time is one of them. I would probably say in every single survey that I've ever sent to my email list, the number one obstacle that people cite is a lack of time. And it's funny because there were times when I was just like, all right, you're full of shit. You're just making excuses. And then, you know, when one of our um, podcast guests and it was a student in our workshop, my friend Michelle Florendo, who's also been a guest here, showed up to our audience mastermind workshop and with her two babies, I was like, oh my God, I'm like, she's actually right. My advice is nonsense. Like, this doesn't make sense. She actually does not legitimately have time. So for somebody who's in a situation where they're like changing diapers and juggling toddlers, obviously that kind of mental free space is something that's very limited. So how, I mean, what's your advice to them? And I think that that'll make a perfect segue into talking about the new book. Oh yeah. Well, oh my goodness. I mean, I don't have kids and I... So if you're a new parent, I do think that there's a season of life that is dedicated to, like in her case, if it's twins, oh my goodness, I just can't even imagine the challenge of that. I think you, there are seasons of life. There are maybe a few years where you go, I am in survival mode. No, I can't read a lot of books right now. I don't have a lot of mental energy. I'm not getting the sleep I need, but I'm dedicated to getting these two little humans to the stage where they're eventually going to go to preschool. And these four years, that is my focus. And at that point, it is survival mode. It is just get the basics of sleep and and trying to trade off with your partner if you even have one and doing what you need for survival and also to be as present as possible with those kiddos. Like I think part of my conversation around time is not so much the quantity, but are we focused and in the zone and present and engaged when we are working? And can we turn that off when we're not working? I don't care. Whoever wants to work however much, I just want us to again, break free of the boxes around that. Who says it needs to be Monday through Friday, nine to five? And so it's a little more permission as well. And and I think um, what I noticed is, you know, I mentioned getting married and we had, uh, we got a puppy, little German shepherd, right before the pandemic hit. So I had this trifecta of sort of getting used to being married having a puppy, the pandemic, most of my income getting wiped out. And I was freaking exhausted. And it made the principles of free time very vital to me in a crucial way that I didn't necessarily need to have when I was single. And I wasn't trying to be present 
and take care of so many other beings in my life. You know, when I was single, just clacking away at my laptop in my studio apartment in Nolita. What is free time? Who cares? All the, all the time was free. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't, it wasn't as much of an obsession. I wanted to, I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to like work less than I was even at that time. I would leave in the middle of the day for yoga class. However, once I had more responsibilities and I'm the breadwinner for our family, I realized now I got to be really focused and really present and somehow nurture not just me, not just my business, but my partnership with my with our dog and with friends and family. And so it just all became, I don't know, it's like the complexity grew and the stakes grew. Hmm. So, okay, I, I have to ask you, like, this is honestly one of my personal fears just based on, on past experience. Like, you're, you know, a woman and you just said that you're the breadwinner. And I feel like as a guy, if I'm not like, I'm like, I'm going to have a very difficult time finding any girl who actually wants to date me. And my friends are like, you will find a girl. She's probably not going to be, you know, somebody your parents approve of. But um, I, yeah, I'm just curious. Like that narrative, I think is. I, I don't know if it's just me, but I feel like a lot of guys actually feel that way. It's like, okay, I don't have my shit together. So there's no way like I can even mm. sustain or like entertain the idea of a, uh, a relationship. Yeah. See, it's such an interesting, we put so as many constrictions on men in our culture and other cultures as well, even outside of the U.S. The way that I sort of thought about this was I realized, okay, I realized a couple things and I can just share my perspective and how I think about it. One thing I realized is I love business. I love it. And I want to run my business no matter what. And if anyone tried to tell me otherwise, they'd be gone. <laughs> so there is no scenario in which, oh, the, you know, the relationship comes first. If they tried to give me an ultimatum that I couldn't work, it's them or the, or my work, you know, within reasonable bounds. But I would just say my business is not going anywhere. So I'm not the traditional woman. And you're right. Like if it was someone your parents would approve of, I'm not the most domestic person. I don't love cooking. I don't <laughs> love anything in the domestic sphere at all. I actually just am allergic to it. And um, so, of course, I figure out how to delegate and do things differently. However, I also realized in terms of the pressures on who has to earn what, if the tables were turned and a man said to me, you need to earn X, Y, Z or else I'm out of here, no matter what that number was, I would freak out. And it's just the way our society is set up that we somehow think it's okay to say, you know, I don't know. I guess I felt like if the, <laughs> I, I do believe in a higher power and I was feeling like we will be provided for. Like who cares whose specific channel the money needs to come through? If we're in a partnership, I trust that we'll be provided for. For me, run as a business owner, money is more of a creative question. Okay, shoot. Now there's three of us. Like how do I? How do I scale? It it always just keeps motivating me to get to the next level in my business. So I take it as a creative challenge. But if if someone said to me, "Oh, oh, you're not earning six figures. I'm I'm out of here. This isn't going to work." I would feel that was such conditional love. So I do I do think those people are out there, but you're right. I think there would be some trade-offs like you know, yeah, I'm just not I'm just not ever going to be this like domestic princess that wears the big white dress on my wedding day. <laughs> And I'm not trying to stereotype or do gender roles or anything like I believe me if you're listening and I, I, I have no disrespect. I think being if someone is a stay at home parent, that is the hardest job on earth. And I respect it so much. So I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. I am just saying the roles that are sometimes expected of me having grown up as a woman in society, like I reject 
wholeheartedly and feel strong about it with no judgment to anyone else. It just does not suit my personality mm. type. So what prompted you to want to write this book? Like, what was the impetus for this as a sort of natural follow up to Pivot? Yeah, Pivot was really about helping people navigate what's next. And just my mantra there, if change is the only constant, let's get better at it. I felt like I was spinning and confused. I wanted to help people get clearer faster. Free time is really about optimizing what's now. So it's it's. I was thinking, you know, my love of systems, it was it was really when I had transition on my team and I brought someone new on and I started to get all my operating principles out of my head and into a Google Doc. And I realized that my love of systems and software and automation and even delegation, it's not, sometimes people feel allergic to the word systems. What are systems for? Freeing up our time. And I think I feel so, what finally got me over the edge to write this book because I wasn't sure I was qualified to write it. You know, I, I don't know. I had been in business 10 years, but I'm not this like multimillionaire, gazillionaire. I feel rich with time, but not necessarily financially running some mega successful eight figure business. But I realized that, um, a lot of those people are short on time. So, um, that's, that's kind of what motivated me is just, I, 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 I hate to see any of us buried by our work and our inboxes and notifications and all the talk now about how toxic social media or certain apps can be that are just gamifying our attention. That really bothers me. Minutia, bureaucracy. I hate things that drain our precious life force. And that's the impetus behind the books to help people do do more of what makes them unmistakable, just like you write about. Well, let's get into the the concepts in the book. I mean, you basically give us this sort of three-part framework of align, design, and assign. And there's a quote that you, uh, you know, open the book with, or not open the book with, but, you know, early on in the book, you talk about a key metric that's missing from PNL, which is time. And you say, allow me to introduce a new metric, the time to revenue ratio, or if you prefer the time to profit ratio, these figures reflect the idea that we can optimize for revenue, ease, and joy at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. So where in the world did we even get the idea that they're mutually exclusive, first of all? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. I, I think it's, it, a lot of people have the thought that time is money. Therefore, if I work less time, I will earn less money. And Benjamin Franklin is the one who said time is money. And we just assume that that is true. And on some level it is you know, in a certain sense that especially if you are working for someone else. But as soon as you're, if you're a business owner and you have time autonomy, that is not always a straight line. Just there is no reward for hard work. Just because you work twice as long as another business owner does not mean you're going to earn twice as much. There is, again, there's no reward for button seats time when you're a business owner. In fact, it's harder to work less because you need to put systems in place and be more focused and automate things and delegate so it's actually quite hard to work less time. Where I want us to build awareness is if, if we hear somebody online talking about their seven-figure business, nobody ever says how much time it takes them to get there. So first of all, are they even profitable? They might be earning seven figures, but it costs eight figures to get there. <laughs> like the early days of WeWork, you know, yeah, just earning well, millions of dollars every day. Okay. Next question is, okay, let's say you are profitable. And by the way, a business earning seven figures does not mean that the owner's take home pay is seven figures. They might be, they might have 10 team members and their take home pay is still 150,000. Okay. Now within the 150,000, how many hours did you work? Did you see your family? Were you working around the clock on weekends? Were you always sending emails from your phone? Were your team peppering you with questions all the time? Like how happy with, were, was that owner with the level of time it took to earn that and the level of complexity on their team? Because another thing I realized is I don't love managing people. I'm okay at it, but the fewer <laughs> team relate. members, the better. <laughs> yeah, I think you and I have a lot in common yeah. in this regard. Which is why I don't yeah. like meetings. I'm just like, even but my community Me manager, either. I'm like, I literally, I, I, I have to tell people that, on my team when we're meeting like i have a community manager angela and sometimes i'll be like angela my attention span is done you need to wrap this up 
And I'm like, wow, I have the luxury of saying that. I was like, I don't have the attention span to continue with this. You need to make this like a five minute meeting now. (laughs) I mean, way to be direct. I know I, we do a lot asynchronously. That's why I love, again, systems documentation. And I've even started, I have this new system I developed for email where I auto tag messages with where in our email guide the answer lives. So I'm like preempting questions that would come to me just by automatically labeling emails with where to go to understand how to handle that. And stuff like that is just, I just constantly want to eliminate demands on my time and attention. And my thing with my team is I just hate to be on video. (laughs) So this is why I love podcasting as well. And if anyone ever schedules a video call, I just immediately write back and say, any chance we could do phone? Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Tiny. We we did an episode about this title, Optimizing for Laziness, because uh, my friend Gareth has built like a seven figure business where he helps large companies automate processes. Um, I mean, and I remember the first time he showed me like, all right, I mean, everything you got from me regarding this interview, completely automated. I didn't do any of that manually. Um, but let's talk about sort of this aligned framework where you have three sort of subcategories under align, which are value, energies, values, energy and strength. Um, expand on those for me. A line is about, is often realigning that wherever, so the the central diagnostic, if you're trying to create more free time, is to look at where are you in friction and where are you in flow. Friction are areas that are making you uncomfortable. You're, you're feeling dragged down. They're draining. You're procrastinating. You dread something. That's friction. Like you discussed the being too long on a long call or being on video has friction for me. So a line is saying, well, why is this important at all? In your case, can we drop this meeting altogether? And if not, well, let's get aligned around what are our values for meetings in general? What are our values? What are we trying to achieve together? What are our strengths? Like, how do we work best? And then where does your energy come from? So for you, Srini, it's like what energizes you and what drains you? And so the aligned stage is being more mindful before we optimize anything. Should we be doing this at all? And if so, how do we really get it aligned? So for example, we've talked about writing books, we've talked about running courses, and we've talked about podcasting. In my opinion, looking at from the outside and what you've shared with me, even offline, podcasting is the most aligned thing that you do. It just aligns with your strengths. It aligns with your energy. It aligns with your goals. Probably podcasting and memming. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> seem like they're the most joyful and those are the ones well, that each feeds the other so they're kind of interrelated. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's talk um <clears throat> then about the you know design component of this because this is like what really struck me and there's a lot of things in here in terms of how you uh build things. But there's one other thing I want to talk about, and that was this idea of imperfection. One of the things that you say in the book is when I create workshops or online courses, I purposely ship them half-baked so that I can gather feedback, serve my incoming audience, and answer their specific questions in the moment and not procrastinate via perfectionism by trying to create the most beautiful course that ever lived. If I waited for that moment, given my skills, energy, and interest, I would not have a course at all. So many people fall into that trap, myself included. Um And I, I, you know, it's funny because I finally realized, oh, yeah, I can just create version 2.0 of whatever this course is. Like when I created the mem course, the first version was kind of like, okay, it's out Um, and it was okay. And then I recreated it and it was a thousand times better. Yeah, this is where I talk about 
where's the cookie dough in your business? Sometimes the cookie dough is more joyful and tastes better than the cookies themselves that are fully baked. And so, yeah, the cookie dough around course creation, and I have, we can put it in the show notes, um, an article on rapid course creation, that I'm not convinced that students need all the polish. I think we assume if you're a content or course creator, you assume that people want you to have the best videos and the best lighting and the best graphics and the best editing. And I'm just not convinced that that's true. Or if for, I think for a lot of people, there's diminishing returns on the effort, energy, cost, et cetera, that it would take to create that. And especially with video, it's extraordinarily hard to then go in and update if that content gets out of date. So what I'm talking about here and I'll just give you an example. I'm not running this at the moment, but I taught a one-week Heart of Podcasting course. I had not created the course, but I did the enrollment. And I, uh, with the enrollment, I did a pre-survey. What are you most excited to learn about? And I had the five modules, one for each day. And I said, what is your biggest question about module one? Biggest question about module two, three, four, five, and so on. So when people registered, they told me their biggest question or challenge So then as I built each day's material, I was building it exactly for what this cohort of students most wanted to know. And it wasn't fancy, but it was in the moment and it was totally bespoke to what was on people's mind. And I don't think they cared at all that I didn't have all the bells and whistles. They wanted the information. To me, a course, a book, a podcast is about transformation. It's not, yes, things like masterclass with a lot of polish can be exciting. And fun to watch, but I know myself when I buy video courses, they just sit unused in my computer. I would rather listen to an audio course and listen on the go and listen at double the speed, you know, than feel like I was stuck sitting watching something. So I kind of also give myself permission to create what I would want to consume. Yeah. I mean, there's also been a lot of criticism of masterclass not actually leading to any outcomes. Like it seems to be more entertainment than it does actual education. Right. Some of them are better than others. I really like the Sarah Blakely one and Chris Voss. Mm-hmm. He's, his was great on negotiation. So it depends. Yes, it can be hit or miss. Yeah. When, and then you don't want hit or miss and you've spent a gajillion dollars in half a year or a year. Yeah. And then the disappointment of like, and then nobody enrolls. Mm-hmm. And then while you're still trying to build up enrollment, it gets out of date. I mean, that's a nightmare. So I, I was also raised in the school of Google launch and iterate, yeah. be scrappy. Oh, and we were always looking over the fence at Microsoft with like their really long development schedules. And I don't know, it just fits my personality as well. It's just Yeah, well, it's funny because we had uh, Alberto Savoya here, who was the, the former director of innovation at Google. And his whole thing was, you know, build the right product. And it was kind of amazing. Like when you go through that framework, how much faster you can uh, build things. One thing I want to talk about is pricing, because you actually say in the book that when you talk to a lot of business owners, one of the things that basically just creates a time suck is the fact that they price their products and services too low. And I just kind of remember reading and thinking to myself, yeah, I'm very guilty of that. Even my, my old roommate, Matt, who I'm, I'm staying with right now, he's just like, dude, he's like, I charge $500 an hour for coaching. He's like, and I have way less credibility than you do. Yeah, I'm, I think there's a lot of advice out there where people will just willy-nilly say, oh yeah, double your rates. And and there's nothing to substantiate that. So I think it has to be commensurate with the value you offer. But on the whole, if you've been doing your craft for a few years and you truly become an expert at it and you have experience and you have wisdom and you're good at what you do and you create tremendous value for your clients, at that point, I find a lot of people more than not are undercharging. 
And if you don't charge enough, you will always be short on time because you will have to fill more proverbial slots in your calendar. Or even if it's not service delivery, if you charge too low for things, you just have to work so much harder. And the the flip side of that, something that's been on my mind lately is platform size. I'm not on social media and I know maybe my platform could be bigger, but I choose to stay very focused on the channels that I do like. But I realize when it comes to something like book launching, the people who build up a huge platform, they might do the same activities as me. I might not have done anything, quote, wrong. But if you launch with a bigger platform, you will just have exponential outsized returns versus someone like me doing all the same activities. I might not see nearly those results. And it comes back to platform size. So I think that goes in parallel with pricing. And platform size can also help you command bigger prices because you have more demand that you can generate. Yeah. AKA James Clear. <laughs> if that's what Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Like if I did all, yeah, exactly. And he did a really good job of building up his newsletter list. Oh, I know. We have the same literature. his book launch. I know all the numbers. Yep. Uh, yeah. Like I think it was 6,000 pre-orders the day he announced the book. That's incredible. It was a guaranteed New right. York Times bestseller. I mean, he wrote a great book, but like that also plays a huge role because there are plenty of people who write great books who don't get nearly that level of success. And, and there are a lot of shitty books on the New York Times bestseller list just because people have big platforms. Yeah, it's true. And and right. And, and, and again, you or I might do all the same. We might do, quote, all the right things. No. Now, at that point, I also try to just trust the process and mm. trust that if a book is meant to find its way in the world, it will. And that I think the measure of any book, and I do think Atomic Habits has this, but somebody has to put it down and tell their friend. Yeah. If you write a book that so that then you, if you don't create a great product that really changes somebody's life, then they're going all the marketing, all the launch efforts in the world. You could do everything. You could throw all the money you have totally. at it. And it still will not have legs because people are going to put it down and they're not going to tell their friend. But for the little smaller creators (laughs) out there, I do believe that if the product is good and people put it down and they tell a friend, that's what gives something word of mouth longevity. Yeah. I mean, I I always like I think that my attitude has always been the Ryan Holiday approach. It's kind of, okay. this book might not see the light of day now, but if it's a perennial seller, it'll even gradually spread because there's a lot of books on the New York Times bestseller list. A lot of people don't know this. A lot of those books didn't become popular until years after they were published. Yes. Even Malcolm Gladwell's Tipping Point, as I learned in a masterclass, it was two years later. How ironic that that book, considering the subject of the book. Exactly. And then it found it. I'm curious for you, just selfishly to ask you a question. With podcasting, do you find podcast growth, I think, is also very interesting because just like you and I with blogging, we got in early, but then now there's more and more shows, professionally done, big studios. Yeah. Podcast growth is another one that seems like you just need listeners to tell a friend. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if you found other strategies. No, no. I mean, to be very candid, like, so it's funny because there's this sort of misconception for podcasters where they're like, oh, I'm just going to interview these really well-known people and they'll share my interviews and the podcast will grow. And I'm like, yeah, you're an idiot. I had that idea when we started and I realized that that was not true. Um, it was always going to be the listeners who caused our you know audience to grow. And that's from that point forward, that was actually why I was like, I will never let fame or status be a criteria. And mm. if any publicist ever tries to pull status on me, I'm like, yeah, you've just gotten yourself banned and every client you're pitching is going to be banned from this point forward. Like, 
somebody, people have tried that. And even my own publisher has tried that. And I was like, are you guys are out of your minds? You really think I'm going to negotiate with you? I was like, they had an, a really well-known author who, you know, I won't name. And they're like, this person only has 40 minutes. And I was like, great. Wish them good luck with the book launch. We don't need them. And 20 minutes later, like we found an hour slot in the calendar. I was like, that's bullshit. There was an hour (laughs) slot in the calendar. You just thought you could pull rank on me. So when you say poll status, you mean making requests of you that are outside of your parameters. Yeah, just because because somebody has status. Yeah, Mm -hmm. which I will literally never do. Like I've told people I was like, I don't care if you're. Oprah or the Dalai Lama, you know, how you know, we always say the United States doesn't negotiate with terrorists. The unmistakable creative doesn't negotiate with podcast guests and especially book publicists. You tell them. I love it. Yeah, I love it. And then that and that's so important to keep the integrity and the standards of your show. This is your show. You set the rules. Yeah. And exactly. I think it's very empowering to be able to say. Well, great. No problem. Good luck with the launch. We're kind of like unmistakable is the anomaly of the podcast world because we started long before everybody else did. We grew slower and we're still smaller. Um, mm-hmm. And to your point, like word of mouth. And so for me, I realized at a certain point, I was like, OK, the one thing that I can control is my commitment to the craft. That's it. You know, everything else is kind of if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Yes. Yes. Commitment to the craft, commitment to learning, to your vision, your process. Yeah. And it, it's, it, it is an interesting creative tension, I find, because I want I want to have the same thing. You know, like the only thing I can control is the content I create mm-hmm. and trust the process. And I don't know if you get this way, too, but and there are times where I go. And Why yet, like. That next, t- if, if I yeah. could hit the next set of download stats, I could earn, I, you know, I do have visions of trying to simplify my business where I can just earn a living from the podcast or something that's extraordinarily <laughs> difficult. Like only exactly. You're laughing. Exactly. Cause it's only like 3% of shows. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I can do that. Yeah. You know, Kel Newport and I were talking about this when I was on his show and he said, you know, democratizing access to the tools doesn't change the dynamics of winner takes all. Um, I thought that was such a good conversation that you two had on that. Yeah. That was a very great point. Well, the thing is that I, I think that people like, if you become more cynical, I was like, no, I think I've become much more of a realist. I'm not, you know, the, the sort of delusional optimist that I was Uh, like, I, to this day, I still remember this conversation. I think I talked to Eric Barker about this yesterday. Like, I remember this was right after I finished business school. My dad tells me not everybody can be the next Steve Jobs. And I'm just like pissed off thinking, oh, you're not, you know, supporting. And then I go and look through my list of articles. I'm like, holy shit, I wrote an article titled, you're not going to be the next Steve Jobs, Oprah or Beyonce. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, I, I'm wary of outliers as role models because I've just been exposed to so many different points of view that I tend to actually, you know, look at things in terms of much, much more realistic, you know, perspective in terms of okay what are you actually good at so that actually you know it makes a perfect transition to a sign and this is something that i wanted to ask you about because i still have not figured this out (laughs) ironically so as far as our podcast goes like i've got this down to an art form in terms of systems like i literally record the interview and i'm done i don't have to do anything i have figured that out for blog posts so i'm curious like you know you talk about a tiny team and the chief everything officer um so when you talk about doubling how you delegate, I wanted to use a tactical example purely for selfish reasons, because yes, I need you to tell me I how you do this because I'm trying to figure this out. Because the one thing I still have not figured out how to do is like, OK, I want to be done writing this thing and just call it a day. So how do you do that? 
How do you okay, well, personally so do I that? Love, I love that we're bringing up this example. And this is why the assigned stage exists at all is because I find that it's the most challenging one. And our inclination is not to assign things. It's just, oh, it'll be faster or easier if I do it myself. What's interesting about the case study you just brought up is that you have actually solved this on the podcast side, which is far more complex than <laughs> yeah, blogging. Exactly. So I'm wondering, tell me a little bit about your blog process. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give it and to you. And where, like, yeah, you told me the vision. All you do is write the post and then the fairies well, you know, take it's, it away. It's funny, right? Because like I, I know that I have it down for the podcast. And I actually, like after I finished reading your book, I started trying to map out, you know, okay, what what are the steps for the blog? Because my my friend Gareth, he built... So everything he did for us is all built on Airtable backend. So like the email you got for this interview, when you are notified that this goes live, I'm not going to write that email. You'll get literally... The, the, all the promotional images are going to be created through automation. The email that you get will be automated. Um, so one of the things that he was very clear on with me is like, he's like, I need you to write this down step by step. Like you're explaining it to the biggest idiot, you know, and because that's the thing that people don't realize about automation is like, you literally have to imagine that your tools are the stupidest person, you know, because most of these tools, yeah, or, even or though someone brand new to the business that has yeah, never well, seen a single thing. <laughs> That's your yeah. PC way of saying it. That's the difference between you and me. <laughs> I'm like, no, but assume the person you're explaining this to is an idiot. And in this case, the idiot is the tool that you're using because most of these tools can only really understand if then language, right? It's like, if then yes, no. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's there. Yeah. I think it was Gary Klein in his book about AI said he's like, just assume you're dealing with a digital idiot savant. Um, so as far as the blog post goes, mm-hmm. so I write it in mem. This is one challenge I've been having with mem is because it's filled with all these bi-directional links. Like I have to get it into another format where, so, okay. So I write the post after that, it needs to be proofread. It needs to be optimized for SEO uh, based on a certain keyword. We use a tool called story chief so that it automatically publishes to medium and our blog. And then it has to be sent to the newsletter. So you got to put in images, optimize a few things, make sure the headings are right. Um, and even adding links, this is something that has driven me absolutely insane because no tool does this within the tool. Like I wish notion didn't do this. Mem doesn't do this. Like I want to be able to just, you know, add an external link and Google it. Naturally, Google docs does that where if you actually highlight text, I don't know if you knew this, but if you highlight text in Google docs, you can link to any post just by searching for it. So it's like, okay, I know my blog because, you know, this is all stuff that's in my brain. So that part I can do faster. But from there, it's like, all right, I want to be done with it after that. Okay, so tell me then, you write the post in Mem, mm-hmm. and it has these cross links. So yes, someone will need to kind of pull out and re-reference some of your archives. Yeah, right, and I can do that in part. Medium. I can do that part but fairly. You quickly. don't necessarily need to do it. I mean, well, the so thing what's is, the okay, part so that you're thing, getting right? tripped up on okay, in terms so of not being that, able to handle? Okay, so like, if I put that into Google Docs, right? it would take me just as long to write a comment that says, add a link to this post as it would to link it myself. Cause that's the funny thing with delegation. It's like, there's certain places where it's like, okay, this would actually take more time, but it's basically once it's in the Google doc to be able to hand it off and be like, all right, add the images. Like I figured it out yesterday. I kind of was like, all right, I know the things that I need to give the VA. And then from there she can do it. It's like, I need to write a meta description for you and I need to write the SEO keywords. And then I just need to tell you how to, you know, organize it. And from there, I don't have to do anything. It does sound like that. It does sound like what you need to do is create these standards that you yourself would do. Because what I find and what has not worked for me is trying to, 
I, I will say uh, maybe some people I know. In fact, I know some people have figured it out where they hire a very entry level VA and they're like, I train them to the moon and they can do everything and everything is done and like just how we want it. And we had the most blissful like relationship. I, I've had it 50 50. Like, yeah. In my experience, some people aren't a fit for that role. Like their brain just doesn't work that way of pulling out the right image, like having a gift of visual thinking or matching an image to this or or even matching an image to the standards that you've set of your style guide of what to look for, writing the meta description, pulling out SEO keywords. Like so that's going to be in some people's skill set and others, it just won't be. Yeah. I've had people on my team that love working in our Kajabi backend and they hated drafting so much as an email with three sentences in it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and so I think what I would say is, what are the standards when you are looking for images to match? Actually trying to pull out and articulate yeah. the Shrini way of finding an image. And it's going to be a lot of what not to do. Like, what are the do's and don'ts? And just getting them out of your head. Because right now it does feel like an intangible quality. Yeah. And then I would say, maybe you're not assigning this role to the most entry level stupid as, as you're in your language. Yeah. <laughs> stupid as versus Well, for the automation actually, parts, like I think that you, yeah. you know, like certain things, like for example, when you use something like Zapier to say, okay, like once this, you know, article is in this folder, you know, send a trigger and assign a task and click up to our VA to go ahead and get it ready to publish. Yes. And, and it sounds to me like that the automations are not what are stopping you. No, That's, honestly, I mean, you sound like a, you're good at those. It's literally, honestly, yeah. based on, you know, what I saw, I was like, this is just a lack of documentation that's stopping me. Yes. And a certain je ne sais quoi of, of what makes you, you like I had a really, it took me a very long time, six years to hand off audio editing fully for a close listen audio edit for my podcast because I, I can, just was so picky. Well, about, I, I'll tell you, I honestly, I yeah. don't think that that's a bad thing. So I edited the first yeah. 400 episodes to this day. I think that was a blessing in disguise. And I'll tell you why. Um, I actually do think newbie podcasters should edit their own interviews um, because it for one thing I realized was that it forced me to go back and listen to every single interview. And that was a gift because I started to notice patterns. I was like, oh, this is something I don't do well. This is something I could do better. I always tell people who are starting out, I was like, it's completely counterintuitive. It goes against every good business principle from like e But I think if you're early, you should absolutely edit your own podcasts. Yeah, you can learn so much. I really enjoyed it. Just very time consuming. Mm-hmm. And I realized I was starting to drop the ball on other things. What I would also say is, for example, with this team that I brought on for show notes, sometimes the show notes would just be a total miss in my mind when we were first coordinating how to work together. And at that point, the question is, is this necessary? Like this piece that is so special that I'm asking them to like read my mind on. Can we just change the parameters a little bit? Can we shift it? Is Let's say in your case, if the image is, is reaching a point of diminishing returns of like getting the right image and the yeah, feedback on the image. Like Greg, it's like, do you uh, need Greg one McKeon's at all? Thing, right? Are medium like, readers going to like collapse no. if there's not an image with your post? No. Yeah. Well, and it's like so, Greg McEwen's thing, right? Where he's like, how am I making this harder than it needs to be? Like I, I'm always looking right. for steps to eliminate. In yes. every process. So I do think that you you do the best you can to document. Like even during our our launch, hey, I had Jenny, a team hold on, working with me. Died. Give me just a sec. Oh, okay, okay. All right, cool. We're good. 
Okay. And then just on timing, I just want to tell, do you know about what time we'll wrap up? Uh, we're getting close. Oh, okay. Okay. No rush. I, I'll tell them I'll be a little late anyway. So um, no rush. Uh, okay. I'll start. I know where to start back if you are ready. Yeah, go for it. I even had a team working with me on this book launch and they came up with the emoji set for our launch. And what's so funny about that, it sounds silly and it sounds like way too micro detailed, but like a black heart wouldn't be on brand for me. I don't like black hearts. I don't even like blue hearts. I like them red or, you know, a certain emoji are the brand, the emojis of the brand. I remember someone asked me once, you know, how do I feel about swearing when they're drafting copy? And I, I care. I actually don't want swearing in my newsletter. Like it's just, it's weird. It's just, but it's something that I have. And, or I don't like too many emoji. I like one strategically placed emoji. So there are little nuanced things that we care about as creators that I do think are part of our special sauce, you know, and it is important to maintain some level of that. And then, so I think, I think that's why something like your blog is, it's a little hard to let go of because it hurts when it's not done well, and yeah. then it gets discouraging, and you're like, oh, I'll just do it myself. Yeah. And there is such a curve, an onboarding curve. But my latest thing that's not even in the book, because I kind of solved it after the book came out, is train the system, then the person. Mm -hmm. I realized I was investing all this effort in training people, and I needed to train the system to get smarter. So everything you were describing about the automations that could come into the blog process, mm -hmm. I think that's where it gets really interesting is like what you've honed for the podcast you've already done. And as you said, you were already starting to step back and just put pen to paper around this. And that's where I think I know for sure you would solve it the way you have with the podcast. Yeah. Well, I think that that makes a perfect place to wrap up where you say something here uh, the, towards the end of the book where you say herein lies the difference of being a solopreneur working on your own versus building a business that can operate at least partly without you. How can you stretch yourself along the spectrum so you can create a lasting company, not one hinging on your energy, effort, attention and time, basically a business that operates without you? I mean, how so I mean, you talk about teams. I mean, we've talked about automation. We've talked about delegation. Um Let's finish this up by talking about how you manage communication uh, externally, like things like email and, you know, all the other sort of external demands on your time. Yeah, I for me, oh, many, many years ago, I felt like we had just reached peak ping as a society. So many inboxes every time there's a new app or service, there's a new inbox. I get really clear with my team about how to communicate. And so we do most of our communication in Notion. That's what we used to run our business. That the communication should really go with the task or project it's about. Not in email, not in Slack, not in text messages. Slack makes me incredibly jumpy. We have it, but it's for you need an answer either very quickly or it's something urgent or it's something that is falling through the cracks as we speak. But I do think it gets kind of sloppy to just say, oh, ask me a question in Slack that just goes to die there or in an email inbox. So I'm always trying to, as I say in the book, every question lives three lives, especially around communication. I just, I hate repeating myself. You talked about this idea of strategic laziness. I hate repeating myself. It just drives me nuts. So if somebody asks me a question, whether it's on my team or from a, let's say a customer or whatever, that gets answered, yes, but then documented internally and ideally documented somewhere externally. So even today, somebody wrote an email. Oh, can you share how do you run your coaching business working with external coaches that are on your team? 
And I pointed them to a video of a course I had taught on that or a webinar I had given for another coaching organization. I'm not going to sit there and answer in a one-off email. So with communication, especially, I like to think about answering out loud. If they ask me that question, okay, maybe I didn't already have a workshop. Can I create a podcast episode? Can I, if I create an audio reply instead of email, can I also post that audio as a private bonus for my BFF community? I'm always thinking about doing more with communication. So it, it's not just one-on-one goes into the archives and there's no value created. There's no asset created. Mm, wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really uh, amazing and insightful. I mean, I think that I think what I really liked about the way that you structured this book is that it was incredibly tactical. Like I came away from it, like thinking, look, I know a lot about time management and building systems and I still learned a lot from it. Well, that's a high, high compliment coming from you because I do know how much you think about all of this. And that was, that's really my goal. It's we, we don't really need more inspiration, you know, it's like we just need to crowdsource with each other. How do we all navigate this wild west that we're in with always on communication and all these apps and devices? And I think we're all trying to figure it out together. So I'm really happy to hear that, Shrini. And it's been such a joy just watching you and your process and just seeing where you've taken this show and your books and your courses. It's 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 a real treat to just get to follow your journey from near and far. Uh, thanks. Well, I have one final question for you, which uh, I know sure. you've heard me ask, and it's how we finish every episode. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, so good. The first thing that comes to mind is soul. Like, uh, what is your soul's calling? What is your, what is deep, deep within what is your soul saying to you? How, where, how, where is your soul guiding you? You know, just, I think what makes somebody unmistakable is this inner flame. Michael, my husband, his, a mentor said to him once, protect your flame. And I see our soul, our, our unique gifts as this flame that if we protect it and nurture it and grow it, that is what makes somebody truly unmistakable is when you just see them. And I love your word for it, unmistakable, just to see them in that beautiful pocket of unique expression. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Uh, where can people find out more about you, uh, the book, and everything else you're up to? Likewise, thank you for all the great questions. And uh, thank you, everybody, for being here listening. You can learn more at itsfreetime.com and look for a free time with Jenny Blake wherever you're listening to this podcast. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. 
We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.